Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source of news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our executive interview series. Today, our guest is Terry Wallers, the founder of the Wallers Associates Advisory and Consulting Firm that was founded in the 1980s and acquired by ASTM International in 2021. Terry is renowned for the Wallers Report, which has been published annually since 1995, as well as his appearances on the Additive Manufacturing Conference Circuit. In 2020, he was inducted into the TCT Hall of Fame. Throughout the episode, we discuss what motivated Terry to set up Wallers Associates, why the time was right to sell the business, and what has kept him in the industry for 35 years. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. Terry, welcome to the Additive Insight Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. You, Sam? I'm doing great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so in preparation for our uh, discussion today, Terry, I went back and I um, actually watched your TCT Hall of Fame speech, which you you gave um, in the summer. And you, you were mentioning in that speech that the first you heard about 3D printing technology, or, or specifically, I guess, stereolithography back, back then when it was just the one process was... Um, in a newsletter and you you dialed the number that was in there and they they sent you a brochure um and I think they gave you a maybe a part as well and a video um and you and you know and you've stayed in the industry ever since but I was wondering um if you could explain a little bit about what you were doing I guess what you were doing for a living before seeing that newsletter um and and I guess what motivated you beyond curiosity to get in touch with 3d systems back in, I think it was 1987, you said in the speech. That's right. Yeah. So the bride and I moved to Fort Collins, Colorado from central Nebraska in 1981 for uh, graduate school. And, um, and then I went back, went to work for the university. This is Colorado State University for five years total. Mm. And and in 1986, I decided to form Wohler's Associates, and it was really inspired by a, a friend and, and mentor who, in fact, published that newsletter you mentioned, in which there was a sh- very short article on 3D systems and stereolithography, you know, the ver- very first company and process to commercialize uh, additive manufacturing, as we call it today, and, and 3D printing. And, and so I started the company November 8, 1986. Uh, really focused on CAD product development, some hands-on training, writing articles, uh, pretty much anything I could do to make money at the time. It's a you know, it's a slow start uh, when you're young and not real sure. But this Joel Orr, who really helped uh, guide me, uh, he uh, was you know worth his weight in gold in terms of giving uh, advice and direction. And then, in uh, about a year later, I read about this uh, this process, and I was just my jaw hit the ground when I read about it. I thought, wow, if this if this works as advertised, it could be as big as CAD solid modeling, which was really just starting to take off back in the mid nineteen eighties. So, as you mentioned, I, I made a phone call. They sent me a, a VHS videotape, one of these big things, and 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 then uh, a brochure, and then, and then a part, a full scale part automotive part and i was just astounded by what what i saw in the video in this part and from that day forward i haven't uh, stopped uh, my uh, my interest and excitement around the technology and it uh, it was your you know you have to get your hands on this that's what it's all about that tactile feedback that, that, that i think that part is what really and of course i have it to this day and so um it's all about uh, parts for visualization for form fit and function testing and of course ultimately manufacturing so yeah it's great to be have been in the industry for now what more than 36 years mm. so what was your you must have had an interest in i guess design and manufacturing to appreciate the potential of the of the technology so when you received that um you know that part i guess and the, and the video and the brochure um and I guess the, the details and the descriptions of the technology, what 
what did you see as the um the key challenges that it could solve back then well i can't say i i had all of the answers or the vision you know the light bulb did go on but i, I could just see a lot of potential <clears throat> in terms of applications you know certainly the modeling and prototyping that that seemed uh, obvious uh, because you know back then and even today it's very expensive to to model and prototype physically without the use of additive manufacturing and so that was the immediate thing that was in the forefront but then ultimately uh, even in 1989, when I went to work for Starkey Laboratories on a consulting basis, they they are still uh, to this day are the largest manufacturer of custom fit in the ear hearing aids, uh, the canal aids. And that's when they got started. And that was our first really big project. And that went for four years. And so, you know, it was a perfect fit uh, in, in terms of the, the most expensive part of a custom hearing aid is, is not the electronics. You can buy the the receiver, microphone, battery, and all the electronics at a relatively low price, but it's the custom shell. And they were building custom hearing aid shells back then, but they would make a, a mold, a one-off mold uh, for every hearing aid. And a lot of air and the wall thickness would vary. And once they moved to, and other companies uh, moved to additive manufacturing, the, the quality uh, went up dramatically. And so today, if you buy a custom fit hearing aid, uh, the chances, the odds are greater than 90%. It will be ha will have been produced by additive manufacturing. On, on that hearing aid project, were you, were you in a, from a consultancy perspective, were you, were you brought in um, to that project specifically with 3D printing in mind or, or was it for, for another reason? It was 3D printing, but it was a bit broader than that. We were looking at, okay, we, we need to, to capture the, the ear data, the, the shape and size. And so the, the call them shell technicians, they would receive the impressions from the audiologist. They would clean those. And then the old way, they would prep and make this model, mostly out of seaweed. And then they would pour in a, a plastic that would, uh, would harden. But in any case... Um, the idea then was to take that impression and digitize it, you know, 3D scan it. And mm -hmm. so we had to come up with a process there and then the software to process the data and really streamline and, and to some degree automate. And then of course the 3D printing. And we, back in 1990, 91 timeframe, we made hearing aids because by then uh, other companies like uh, FDM from Stratasys, uh, Hillasys, a paper lamination process, uh, the laser centering, selective laser centering from uh, then DTM Corporation, which was acquired by 3D Systems, several processes were available. So we were making hearing aid shells out of all of these processes. And so, yeah, and, and, and everything more or less worked. It really did, except the scanning wasn't great. The software was even worse <laughs> in the 3D printing, the materials and speed, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we're not we're not great. So the company decided to put it on the back burner for a few years. And then Siemens Hearing Instruments and Phonak partnered, and they really took credit for first commercializing uh, the process. And of course, Star Starkey Labs was, <laughs> was not happy about that, nor was I. You know, we should have protected uh, the work that we had done, but we didn't. Mm. That's interesting. So I'm always curious to ask when I, I speak to people who, like yourself, have been um, in the 3D printing or additive manufacturing or, or rapid prototyping as it was back in the day in that industry pretty much since the beginning. Um, because when you when you kind of came into the industry or started working in or adjacent to the industry, it, it would have been like a handful of companies, you know, you just mentioned a few. So what is it that, that I guess made you sure that a, a career in, in this space was worth pursuing? Well, you know, I, I didn't, honestly. I think it was more luck than, than anything else. But I just had this feeling that it was going to grow. And it was a one-person company back then, so it didn't take a lot to to satisfy my needs. And And what's more is that I was learning. I was like a sponge. I was just taking it all in. And so it didn't take a lot to be an expert back then. If you if you knew a few of the the terms and the processes and how they worked, 
uh, people like, wow, this guy. So, you know, people were inviting me to come to their companies and help them and to do speaking and did articles as well. And that further, uh, you know, it, it gets you out there in the forefront. And, and so one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was uh, pretty happy. I, I went down that road. Mm. What did your, like, um, I guess your, your peers outside of a, a professional capacity, so your, you know, your friends, your, your partner, your, your family, what, what were their kind of thoughts on, on you working in, a, in an industry? I guess they wouldn't have known what the technology was. So how was, how was that? Did you have to, you know, kind of convince anyone that you were, you know, you did know what you were doing and, and you were, you know, as you say, optimistic and confident that it would grow? Yeah, you know, the, the friends really didn't know much about it. Uh, you know, you would explain and show them some parts. Um, I guess my wife needed to be persuaded, but not to to a great degree. She was she's always been supportive, incredibly mm-hmm. supportive. And I had published a, a textbook, a CAD textbook back in uh, 1986. This is the same year I, I in fact, that was one motivation for leaving the universities because I was making more money from book royalties than I was from the university salary. Not that it was a lot of money, but <laughs> maybe that suggests how little I was making at the university. But in any case, the book publisher McGraw-Hill wanted to do a second edition. And so I really needed the time and the energy to to give it. And then also thought, well, that would be a perfect time to to start the company. So the, the book royalties really served as a safety net. I figured, well, Worst case, uh, this this company doesn't do well, and but I can always you know live off of the royalties and then maybe do something else. But uh, it turns out um, it helped get me through the I won't say rough times, but slow because there just wasn't. Uh, and I was still doing some CAD consulting work and so forth. But uh, yeah, it worked out. That brings me to uh, I think it was 1995 when you started publishing the the Wallet Report. So. What I guess what encouraged you or motivated you at that point to start that publication, and and maybe you can touch on the kind of evolution of of the Wallace Report in those first few years. Yeah, so the first edition was uh, we we had done some earlier, uh, but they were free give giveaways. In fact, I think they may be at our website. At least they we have a new website. I, I don't know if they even got. Uh, you know, added to the, the new website. But in any case, uh, 86 was the first one that we sold. The The idea behind it uh, was to offer an appetizer, make money on it. But I really didn't see it as a big business uh, to, to get something out there. And then people look at it and go, hmm, maybe we should get in touch with uh, this company and see if they can help us. And and it turns out it worked out uh, even better than expected. And so uh, we... You know, I was just—I've always been busy. Really, have done very little marketing and selling, other than the, the writing and speaking, and word of mouth. So, over time, I decided to give—you know—put more into the the Wolves report and make it a a more bona fide product and and to charge accordingly. Although I've always had the the belief that you can make up for. Well, a lot of these market studies will sell for two, five, seven, even ten thousand dollars, but the volume sales are very low. It can be maybe thirty, fifty uh, reports. So it wouldn't serve as well in terms of getting it out there. You want a lot of eyeballs on the report. So my thinking was, I want anybody, you know, even a graduate student or anyone, to be able to afford to buy it. Um, as well as any any company, even startups, and, and so that approach worked quite well. And even to this day, you know, it's uh, five hundred ninety five dollars. You know, compared to you know at least ten times the price of of uh, some of the other reports out there. I like to say that it offers more depth, breadth, and detail than any report at any price, and that's what we've tried to to, to make it. So so that's that's a little background on the report, and uh, it, it, it's worked out and. Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're glad we did it, and we look forward to doing many future editions. Mm. You mentioned the you know the the detail and, and the breadth within the within the Wallace reports. Can you what what kind of information was in that very first edition of it? And is it true to what we see in 
in the in the Wallace reports of today? Has there been much kind of deviation in, in the information you're putting into into that publication? Well, it started out being more system manufacturing uh, centric in the sense that you didn't have as many users. Uh, among the, the earliest adopters were service providers. And, and to this day, they're the power users. And so if you look back in the beginning, it was more focused on the manufacturers of the systems, the machines that build the parts. Uh, and then to a lesser degree, the materials, but relatively few users. I mean, some of the early ones were like GM, Chrysler, Baxter Healthcare, and a few others, Gillette. And so we could talk about them, but they weren't sharing as much as we'd like. And so as, as it evolved over the years, and especially over the last 10 years, we've focused more on applications and, and use cases, really looking at, you know, the major industries such as healthcare, uh, aerospace, uh, medical, well, that's part of healthcare, uh, automotive, and so forth. And then really, you know, in fact, just this morning, I had some email exchange with uh, someone from BMW who wants to, they offered to provide information for the next edition of the Wallers Report. And so it's more of that than, and the system manufacturers, there are so many today, uh, it's hard to wrap your arms around them. And and it, uh, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, people really want to know how, how do you put this technology to work to make money? Mm. You know, how, how, how do you make good decisions? Uh, and that's what we, we, do our best to to provide that to package bundle that in the Wallace report. Mm, you touched on it there, but how how challenging challenging has it been as you know the industry has grown? And I mean, you know, um, I I think you were at, at the recent Fall Next event. I know I was, and there's hundreds of exhibitors there. There's plenty of companies that didn't exhibit there. How do you um, ensure that you keep across all of those? technologies and all of the users and the usages of those technologies how much of a of a challenge is that yeah well that's a good question sam i i tell you what we i learned a long time ago that as much as you'd like to think you know about everything ever in every place in the world uh it's impossible especially today even even several years ago so we've we've been lucky enough to form a network we've had we had more than 80 domain experts from around the world contribute to the Wolves report. And, and those are the people who have authored or co-authored parts of the report. And then we have hundreds of other companies who provide data. And, and among those are the service providers, you know, the bureaus out there, the system manufacturers and producers of materials, those three groups. And we ask them for very specific uh, data. And one thing that perhaps sets us apart is that we've done this for so many years that we build up trust. You know, we're asking them for data that we we only publish the composite totals, meaning that we add in their data to come up with these industry-wide totals. <clears throat> and if we publish or share their individual data with others, that will be the last time we, we hear from them. So we don't. We, we, we promise that we won't share that. And we've done it for so many years that we build up that trust. And now they send us data year after year after year. And we, we continue to add to the... The, the wide range of, of companies that uh, that we make contact with and we hope now you know, obviously not everyone responds but you know a relatively high percentage do and that's how we we get our data and then that coupled with the contributions from the 80 plus contributors for example we asked for give us the state of the industry in Slovenia give us the state of the industry in the UK Germany Japan China, uh, around the world. And so that's, uh, but then also experts from around the world that are expert in metallurgy, for example, or expert in some other area. And so that's how we would like to think we can do as good as we can possibly do by involving a lot of uh, experts around the world. Mm -hmm. um, on, on, on the kind of, I guess the from a business side, you know, after after around thirty years of you of you being, um, or probably even more actually, if you if you started Wallers Associates in eighty six, and I think um, last year, <clears throat> excuse me, last year the the ASTM international acquisition happened. Um, can you explain? Um, I guess why ASTM was the right organisation to kind of team up with in, in that regard, and I, and then why 
last year was was the right time for you to to make that business decision to um you know to kind of merge with with ASTM yeah so you know i've been thinking about this for years you know uh, we're not around forever and there's a point where you like to take a step back and let maybe a younger generation and others uh, you know take some leadership uh, with a, with a company and and so um, I secured a, an excellent M&A, a mergers and acquisitions company, and STS Capital Partners. Uh, and so they took the lead on this. This was in early 2021, last year. And then the transaction was um, just more than a year ago. We announced it at, at Formnext last year. And so, you know, to answer your question, why ASTM International? We were look, really looking for an organization that was 100% independent, neutral. We didn't want, we had interest from many companies. Started out more than 150, it was the list of companies. And then we had interest from more than 20. And ASTM bubbled to the top because they they checked all the boxes. You know, great people, they, they launched uh, an initiative. Well, they're a standards organization and standards on additive manufacturing through their uh, committee F42. And that was launched in, in 2009. So they'd already had a, a, uh, a presence, uh, an interest in the subject. And then in 2018, uh, Mosin Safi became the first employee of the new, at, at the time, uh, Additive Manufacturing Center of Excellence, which is based in Washington, DC. And that has now grown to, if you include our team, I think it's 27, maybe 28, because they're hiring people uh, almost weekly. And th these are uh, experts uh, in in various areas, a lot of engineers, people in large equipment, aerospace, uh, we have somebody in the UK or from uh, GKN Aerospace, and um, formerly, and in footwear, and the list goes on. And so... I thought, well, this could be a real compliment to uh, Waller's Associates, having all of these experts, uh, you know, we, we could do so much more and hopefully they could too with our help. And so it, it just seemed to, and it's a nonprofit organization too. That was icing on the cake, you know, it's uh, so we are, we, we couldn't be happier uh, with uh, the teaming uh, with uh, ASTM International and the, the Center of Excellence on, on AM. So, so far, so good. Today's episode is sponsored by 3D Systems. Here, Paul Miller, 3D Systems Materials Product Marketing Manager, introduces Duraform PAX, a new novel SLS nylon photopolymer that promises great mechanical properties for prototypes and end-use parts, long-term stability, and unexpected low cost of ownership. Duraform PAX is a new family of products that uh, we developed in partnership with uh, Adams Grill Tech. And what we're really excited about is it's innovation in the space where there hasn't been a ton of types of materials. Duraform PAX is durable, it's tough, um, it has really high elongation and is really flexible. So it opens up a lot of application possibilities. It prints at a very low temperature, which is actually one of its strengths because it's easier on printers and has a really high recycling rate. What we're also really excited about is some of the operational benefits. It is faster to handle. Uh, you can remove it, the part cake, the machine faster after printing and the breakout of parts. And, and that's where some of the financial benefits help our customers as well. When people hear new and novel, they, they typically jump to, it's gotta be expensive. Um, but, but our pricing strategy with Duraform PAX was intended to encourage adoption as a go-to material, particularly for those customers that are looking for prints with unspecified properties. So you, you still get all those great mechanical properties that we, we talked about, but at generally a lower cost. And then it's the operational benefits. It's the ease of printing. It's the operator intervention, the less service. You don't have any sublimation, which is one of the big challenges people experience with PA11s. Our customers have come to us and said they're really excited to be able to offer an SLS material uh, to their customers that, that they can ship within 24 hours, which is, is truly remarkable. This material is intended for end use parts. You've got long-term stability, and in some cases, properties that make it indistinguishable from injection molded parts. Can you talk about that? 
today we have two different variants and it's a family that we expect that will we'll grow in the future. We have a, a natural color and a black color. We've tested the color and the mechanical properties out over five years for indoor and outdoor over a, a year and a half. And the tensile strength, the elongation and color all hold up from the look and the aesthetics of the material, particularly when you vapor hone it, you're able to get some translucency that opens up new applications. So anything where you're trying to look at liquids and anything within walls, you'll get that really nice translucency. It's, it's been described from our customers as looking like a, a rigid polypropylene. For the black material, uh, instead of the translucency, you get an additional sheen. So some of these sample applications that we've made is we've introduced texture onto the parts and then vapor honed it. By doing that, it really looks like an injection molded plastic. One of the examples I like to talk about is some of our engineers that work on all these different materials in, in our office and showing these uh, vapor honed SLS parts, people are shocked to believe that they're, they come from SLS. To learn more, head over to mytct.co forward slash 3dspod or visit 3dsystems.com. So did you, because, you know, you, as we've discussed, you started the company as, you know, one person. Um, over time, that's that's grown to, um, you know, a, a quite significant team of, of people. Can you, you know, you, you're an analyst, you're a, you're a speaker, but, you know, there's also kind of an, an entrepreneurship element to, to, the, to the business here, you know, you're a business leader. So can you tell me about the growth strategy of the, the Wallace business? Did you have this vision from the start that it was going to, um, grow into a, a team of people and then beyond that did you have um, within that vision a a kind of I guess exit strategy if, if you will of of then selling the business when when the time was right and as you say putting it in in the hands of of a team of people that you that you trust yeah you know it's been an interesting ride in the sense that if you look at at some other companies, they tend to, to grow with more employees and they become large. And you know some of the big brands out there that are in the uh, consulting and publishing business. And part of me wanted to go down that road, but a much bigger part wanted me to stay small and simple, really focus on the, the business, the market, technology of uh, additive manufacturing and related processes and, and technologies. And so I, I res resisted the urge, kind of push back on the temptation to, to, to go down the, the road of, of growing. You know, part, part of me today, I'll admit, I'm not going to lie, uh, part of me, um, not regrets, but, I, you know, you just kind of wonder what would have happened had I, you know, gone down that road and build up to 50, 150 people or, or more uh, over time, because I think today, I think additive manufacturing could support, I don't know about one that size, but certainly something a lot bigger than, you know, a dozen or, or fewer people. And so, um, so, so that was my thinking. And, and I knew at some point that uh, it would be time to, to take a step back, back, I wasn't really sure exactly the, the steps to do it. I, I tried myself to to sell the company and, and failed miserably. That's why I, you know, I really uh, appreciate the um, the expertise and and, and the, the the team of people that companies like STS Capital Partners bring because they, you know, they they, they just they've done it before. They know how to go about it, and and I didn't, and and I've learned a lot from that process. So, yeah, that's uh, that was a, a bit of a bit of the journey. Mm. The the other I, we've talked about um, Wallace, and we we touched on right at the start. You know, um, the the first part you received. I want to kind of get your your insights and your thoughts on on the industry as opposed to to just. Um, well, as associates, and you've been in the industry for, I guess, 35 years um, or around about that length of time. In all of that time, what's kind of been the, um, I guess, the application or the application area that has either, you know, blown you away or you felt really solved the problem or has gotten you excited? I, I guess, aside from that very first part you received, what what in the, and I know there's probably loads, but in the, in the, 35 years has, has kind of really excited you that, that you've seen come from 3D printing technology? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's a long list of, uh, you know, I tell you, it, rarely does a week or month go by, I, I, my jaw hits the, the ground again. It's like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Or, you know, it's just amazing what some of these companies, the creativity, I think, you know, the design for additive manufacturing is really where a big part of this is at. Now that we have the tools to do it, both software and machines and materials. So I, I guess maybe at least one area and that's healthcare. If you look at some of the work that's been done over the years, you know, separating conjoined twins with the help of producing, yeah, you know, of course you do x-rays, MRIs, et cetera, to, uh, to, to, to look at what you have, but when you can take that data and build 3d models in color and show all of the, uh, the blood vessels and, and where you have to make the cuts. And it's not only for conjoined twins, but, tumors and gunshot victims and a long list of, uh, you know, to to aid uh, teams of medical professionals and to use those models to communicate with families, uh, friends, patients, et cetera. And, and so that, you know, and now we're seeing, of course, you know, companies uh, uh, such as Stryker in Cork, Ireland, you know, they've, they years ago, I think it was in 2016, built that $400 million added a manufacturing facility where they believe someday that 100% of their orthopedic implants will be grown, you know, will be made by by 3D printing. And, and you know, that's 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 exciting. And, and there's a lot of other places that the technology touches besides, you know, if you look at prosthetics uh, and, you know, dental and so forth. And it's just, um, and then, of course, tissue engineering and regenerative medicine, being able to grow uh, human tissue, both hard and soft. And, and so, you know, the sky's the limit there and so much work is going on. It's just so incredibly exciting, but that's, that's one area that perhaps will, I think, impact, um, mankind perhaps more than anything in terms of, uh, well, uh, this kind of, you know, manufacturing technology. Yeah. I think the thing with, um, healthcare applications, I guess, is everyone can relate to it in some way. It's, I mean, you know, let's take an automotive part that saves a load of money, and maybe that'll change when when we factor in, you know, kind of um, supply chain uh, sustainability. Rather, um, maybe then we can we can appreciate that impact. But a healthcare story, everyone can can relate to. We might need to, you know, rely on that kind of technology and that innovation someday. So I think that's certainly an easy one when you're. Um, I guess, talking to people who aren't maybe um, aware or, or informed on the technology, that's one way I think of getting through to people that, you know, this is the technology and this is the impact it's having because we can all relate to whether it's a prosthetic arm or, as you say, a, you know, a model that, that aids a surgery or that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, often we'll be sitting beside somebody on an airplane and ask you what you do. And if you pull out of your pocket a uh, spinal implant, uh, you know, titanium, titanium, they can relate to that. They they can, or or a, or a, a hip or, or, you know, name your body parts. And and so you're right. They they can uh, relate to it and appreciate what, uh, what this technique. And a lot of these are one-off, you know, some are standard, of course, but... Uh, so yeah, it's it's a very exciting future, I think, in healthcare. But but not only, like you say, automotive. Uh, I, I think that by by the way will really almost flip a switch once they hit the mainstream automotive sector, where they're producing you know fairly high volumes. That will drive the the, the price performance ratio to the point not only in automotive but it'll impact so many other areas. Uh, you know whether it's sporting goods, other types of consumer products. Uh, and it'll just open up more applications and then companies will be able to, because the machines will have to be so much faster, the cost per part will be much lower and companies will be able to justify the use of this now a bit more expensive technology, uh, be able to justify its use. And so I think uh, automotive is, is key. Today, aerospace, you know, of course, that's uh, we're seeing incredible, incredible parts, the rocket industry for space uh launches and so forth that uh a lot has happened just in the last five years here in colorado and, and elsewhere so yeah it's a it's an exciting future definitely um one thing i wanted to ask was um obviously somewhere along the along the way during your 35 year um career with, within this industry there was you know a period of hype let's say 
10 years ago and you know all that talk of 3d printers in, in every home some would say in every room of every home and you would have been talking on conference stages you would have been measuring the the development of the industry for the wallace report what was your impression of 3d printing back then and i and and I guess, how is that impression of what the technology could do um, and where it made sense to be applied changed over time from your perspective? Yeah, it was, I think, maybe around 10, 11 years ago when we were hitting the peak of the hype. You know, just so much being put out there. And, you know, sometimes it's easy to to blame the press, but it, it wasn't only the, only the press. It was um, in presentations, conversations uh, in hallways at conferences, and people were 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 believing and then there was a propagation of this uh, belief um, back then like you say the the small 3d printers in every every home and you know it's kind of like sewing machines a lot of us have sewing machines in our homes but how many people use them to to make our, our own clothes it's uh we we don't uh, most most people won't have the design skills you know websites where you can go online and, and produce a, a custom ring, for example, where, you know, you have limited options. You can put your uh, logo on a ring. So that, that sort of thing, that's different. But, you know, most most of us are not going to be designers and manufacturers, I, I don't believe. And and so we, we've always taken the approach to be very careful in, in believing some of the uh, speculation that people provide out there. It's like, prove it, show me the data. I, I, I'm not going to get, you know, I, it's always nice to have hope and, and provide support and, and so forth, because if you just always pour cold water on something, it never develops. But at the same time, you have to be responsible. You have to, uh, you know, if you're providing a, a product or service to companies, you, you've got to be responsible in the sense that, hey, you know, you're making a big decision here. It's a multi-million dollar decision. I wouldn't necessarily bank on that just yet. You know, give it a couple of years, see where it goes. Uh, I think we're seeing that today with the additive construction industry, where everyone is, not everyone, but many people are reading these stories about 3D printing homes. And uh, I, I think it's going to be very big, not, not necessarily homes, but 3D printed construction. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the construction industry is trying to understand where it's going to go and where it fits and where they can build business cases. And I don't know about you, Sam, but I've yet to see any hard data around the use of, I mean, and there's a reason we're not seeing it, right? There, there, there must be, because if it, if it was encouraging and compelling, they would be putting it out there. Yeah. And so, uh, but that here's a, here's a, an example of, you know, I don't want to, you know, throw cold water on that idea. I think it, it needs to find where it fits. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's bridges or the military use or uh, ornamental types of things. I think a lot of the rules that we have learned over the last 35 years with the smaller scale additive manufacturing apply to the large scale. If we're doing just basic shapes there, you know, we, we know of better ways to do that. But if you're doing complex ornamental types of, you know, I, I see when architects begin to embrace this, we'll see incredible new designs that before were uh, we're not feasible because of cost. It'd just be too too costly. And so those kinds of things, I think, uh, need to uh, unfold over the, the coming years. Mm. In terms of the, you know, the industries that um, you listed them before, healthcare, automotive, aerospace, and I, I guess consumer products and that kind of thing, the, the, the industries that we we come to accept or, or aware and are using the technology um, and bring in the kind of the providers of those technologies as well as the press and people who are speaking on the conference circuit. And where do you think, in terms of hype and in terms of, I guess, hyperbole and exaggeration and, and the way we talk about the technology, where how does that compare to 10 years ago in terms of in terms of hype? Are we are we at a, a point where everybody's talking sensibly about the technology, or do you still feel there's you know, people may be a little bit here and there kind of hyping up the technology that's, you know, perhaps beyond where it is. What's your thoughts on on that and, and where I guess our our the way we talk about the technology is today? Yeah, you know, hype is never going to, to go away entirely, but if you look at 
at today compared to say 10 years ago, it's night and day. So we really have gotten, I think, past uh, more people, most people that are either close to it or on the periphery better understand what's realistic and, and what's just, you know, unrealistic. And uh, so, so, so that's good. Uh, with the exception of the construction industry, I think there's still a lot of uh, still, uh, yeah, I think we're almost at the peak of that hype right mm -hmm. now. You know, it's uh so, for example, a 3D printed house, it's like, well, in reality, it's not, you're only 3D printing the walls and the walls represent less than 5% of the value of the house. So even if you get them for free, uh, there actually could be some real downside because you have all the the utilities that run into the walls, the plumbing, the heating, the electrical, and, you know, hanging a picture on a concrete wall is not as easy as a studded, a wood studded wall. I've done it and it's not as easy and remodel and, and all of that. And, you know, so we, we like, like I said, they, we need to understand uh, and the industry needs to understand you know, where it fits. And, and I think, I, I think it will, but, but to, to answer your broader question, we are in a much better place today than we were uh, 10 years ago and uh, won't go away, but uh, I'm feeling much better about it. Mm. Another, another kind of, Another thing that was happening um, back then, 10, 10, 15 years ago, was um, a real wave of, of M&A activity. Um, and, and we're seeing it at the moment over the last couple of years, maybe to a lesser extent. I, you know, I think I've, I've read before, like 3D systems acquired like 16 companies in one year. We're not quite at that level, but there has been a lot of activity in terms of mergers and acquisitions over the last couple of years. So what do you, what do you make of that? As a kind of industry analyst, what does that tell us about um, the additive manufacturing market? Yeah, I think uh, M and A activity is inevitable. You know, you you tend to have a lot of startups when you see so many opportunities, whether it's app, new applications, software tools, uh, machines. We're still seeing a lot of companies develop new types of machines or variations of them, materials companies of, you know, the chem chemicals, uh, chemical giants are, you know, they're all in. And so, you know, yeah, I, I think we're seeing a lot of activity now. I think 3D systems back in when they started making their acquisitions, was it 2009, I, if my memory serves me correctly, we, we counted them, the ones that were public, more than 50, we're right at 50 companies that we counted uh, that's an exception. I, I, you, know, you, you tend not to see that, uh, but desktop metal, I mean, today you look at, they've, they've acquired, I think more than 10 companies. And so we are seeing, you know, companies like that on a buying spree. And, uh, you know, you just hope that the, the IP and know-how that they acquire, not desktop metal in particular, but just other companies that they um, help grow it, fertilize it. And, 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 you know, really help it to to get to the next level. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of those fifty companies that 3D Systems acquired didn't go anywhere, mm -hmm. and you know, they, they in some cases even sold them back to their owners, original founders, and not many, but there's a few of those cases. And and so so I could say that the mergers and acquisitions are inevitable, and we're seeing a lot today. Uh, the hope is that it it helps the industry you know, get to the next level. Sometimes it does, sometimes uh, not. We spoke about the the opportunities um, for the technology in industries like healthcare and, and automotive earlier. What what do you see as the the, the biggest challenges, I guess, um, whether that relates to, you know, the industry or the tech or the, or the culture or whatever it might be, what are the challenges that, that remain for, for the AM industry that, I guess, um, need to be overcome um, as, as we move forward? Yeah, that's, a, that's a, a very good question and one that we've been thinking about for you know more than three decades. Uh, I think today it is, uh, I think cost is still at the top of the list when it, it not, not for prototyping quantities or testing because you can spend a lot of money per part at that phase because the value of prototyping and testing is, is, is so critical. But when you get into manufacturing, it's largely not entirely, but largely about cost. You still that's assuming the quality is there. And so cost of of machines and, and of course speed enters into that. If you double the speed, that's like getting the machine at half the price or getting two machines for the price of one. So speed enters into that. 
So the cost of the machines and the materials, and, and that largely, not entirely, but largely makes up for maybe not as much in aerospace because you have qualification, certification as a big part. So that is another obstacle, but it really is uh, tied to the particular industry, uh, not to jewelry, for example, or not to maybe as much in some other areas, but certainly aerospace, uh, medical, and, and automotive. And, and some other ones would be uh, design. Uh, design is certainly one that, um, you know, Envision, if you have a, a product that you could 3D print, let's say 50 of the 200 parts that make up the product, you add up the cost of printing all those 50 parts, it becomes, you know, it, it's too expensive. It just doesn't work and it's too slow. But if you design and consolidate many of those 50 parts, you know, GE Aviation, I think they're now GE Aerospace, you know, they've been uh, you know, among the leaders in this area where they consolidate many parts into one. And that has a, an enormous impact on your uh, supply chain, on your part numbers, inventory, inspection, certification. It's huge uh, because you're certifying fewer parts. Uh, assembly, maintenance, all of that uh, is largely reduced. And so, um, and then also producing lighter weight structures using less material and, and you know, it's often mostly, almost always expensive to, to move things, whether it's transporting the, the, the part or assembly, or if it's a, a vehicle of some sort, uh, it's more costly if it's heavier. So, so, so design for additive manufacturing is, is a big one as well. Mm -hmm. So those are among the top. Uh, there's others, you know, you could argue talent. You know, there's, a, a I think, a real uh, need for talent. And there's a, the demand is, uh, exceeds the supply today at uh, many companies. And once they do hire a good employee, then they're attracted to, to move on to the next place because uh, they're offering them more. So, you know, talent is a, is a big one. And I think that will actually become one of the bigger ones in the, in the next few years. Is So, you know, if you're a young person listening to this and you're on the fence as, you know, what do I do in the future? You know, take a look at this because there, there's so many job opportunities, whether it's material science or, or selling machines, consulting, uh, training, uh, teaching at a, at a school, uh, using the technology. I mean, there's just so many areas in which you could work uh, to uh, help build this industry further. Mm, definitely. And, and you can attest to, you know, you've been in this industry for 35 years. There's plenty of other people who've been in the industry for that long. It's a, it is a good industry, I guess, to to, to work in I'm sure you'd, you'd say the same and you know you mentioned talent I think talent will be the biggest one because to unlock all of the other challenges you need the right people yeah absolutely it, it really in the at the end of the day it comes down to people and and you know how they can contribute to, to build a business and, and really contribute so yeah I mean it's a it's a fun place to work because you know it depends on your job obviously but in my particular case, I get to, because we, we haven't tied to one specific industry, of course, we worked in some more than others, but, you know, we, we try to keep our eyes on pretty much everything that's going on out there. And it's just, it, it's, uh, it's fascinating, you know, day in and day out. It's just like, wow, I didn't see that coming or, wow, look at that company that was acquired or this new company that was formed, this way in which they applied this software to for a new design or, you know, just one thing after another. And it's just uh, so much fun. <laughs> and then, of course, to get your hands on parts, you know, going to events like Formnext and, and Rapid uh, plus TCT and other events where you can see them, but then touch them. And sometimes even take some home with you. Uh, coming back from uh, Frankfurt uh, Formnext uh, a few weeks ago, uh, you know, I brought home, uh, you know, a small handful of little giveaways, but also uh, I was a lucky winner of the the guitar that Olaf Deagle donated for oh, really? the wow. Ukrainian initiative. Uh, to, together, we are a strong initiative to raise money for the Ukrainians. And and so I uh, was, uh, like I say, lucky enough to, to have the, the highest bid. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful piece of work. It's absolutely, you know, instruments. I mean, that's, that's mm -hmm. another area that is uh, people can you know, produce businesses from something that would otherwise be difficult to get into. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Do you play guitar, Terry? 
Well, I can't say I really play. I uh, I have the Hive bass from uh, Olaf Deagle, and I have the one of the early versions of the Spider guitar. But now I have this. I don't think it even has a name yet. It's only one of of two on the, the planet. But it was made in in uh, wood, so it was the new forest process where yeah, it spreads yeah, yeah. Uh, sawdust and then uh, binder jetting to to bind together the, the particles. So. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I wish I could play. I, you know, I, I did take lessons a while ago and then, uh, I was started traveling every week and it just, mm. it's like, I can't do both. You know? yeah, <laughs> so I, I do play another instrument, but, uh, not the, the guitar so much. Okay. Well, what's that instrument? Oh, it's a saxophone, but I don't, uh, I haven't pulled it. Well, I did pull it out a while back, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm a little rusty on it, but right. yeah. So. Cool. Um, apart from uh, potentially learning to uh, to play guitar, what what would you say is next for for you? And I guess um, while as associate as a business moving forward. Yeah, well, I'm fully committed to the uh, to to Wooler's uh, Associates and to uh, ASTM International and uh, the partnership between the two. And and you know, it's a full I call it a partnership, but but it was a full acquisition. They own the assets of the company and. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're here to, to support them uh, for the next uh, foreseeable future. And, and uh, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's uh, it, everything isn't uh, as easy as you never merging companies is not easy, uh, but they are great people. Very, um, very bright. They've been around for 124 years, not the people, but <laughs> ASTM <laughs> International and uh, they're hired. They continue to hire good people. And, and so it's, it's really a, it's a lot of fun. This this transition transition and the the, the next uh, phase in Wooler's Associates. It's been fun to watch it unfold and be a part of it. So, um, I um, and, and then I you know I like to do some other things too. I I've got in four days of snow skiing so far this uh, season. It's that's not a, an impressive number, but this is early season skiing, and I like mountain biking. Do a lot of that. I like hiking. Done some uh, tall mountains uh, recently. And, and then hanging out with the family uh, with them on these activities, including scuba diving to our son and daughter or divers and son-in-law. So I, I want to do more with family and friends and uh, and uh, live life uh, the way one should and, and try to give back, too. So I'd like to look at ways to uh, help this industry, and maybe other areas, too, to uh, to, to, to maybe inspire young people to to help people. Um, be successful mm -hmm. and so uh, that's uh, been on my mind as well. Mm -hmm.